You've heard the expression, we've always done it that way, right? It's well-worn paths that we take and we kind of get used to our patterns in life. Even if you think about just some common things like how you clean your house. In our house on Saturday mornings, we have our field day and everyone has their role to play in getting things clean. And so uh, the, the driving force behind that is not me but someone that I love dearly. Um, you kind of get into the rhythm of how you do that uh, each week. Uh, we have recently uh, made some amendments by purchasing a couple of electronic devices that do some of that for us, that do some automatic learning of your floor mapping and then do some, some uh, vacuuming for you and another section where it can do some mopping. Uh, so far, it's, it's working out pretty nicely. A little change of that well-worn pathway. That's just in some common things, right? And then when it comes to religious or spiritual endeavors, uh, well-worn pathways often lead us in the wrong direction. From a spiritual perspective, traditional pathways often lead us away from the simplicity that is found in Christ. John the Baptist came on the scene uh, strangely clothed, right? He had camel's hair on, and uh, he was eating a strange diet. He had his... Uh, locusts and wild honey, but he also had a, for the time, a strange message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, you're not okay the way you are. Something needs to change. There's, there's uh, something that needs to happen for you to experience and enjoy that which God has provided for you. There's a different pathway. Jesus' message to Nicodemus has a familiar flavor to the fact that you, in your own way, in your own pursuits, in your own contributions, you're not okay the way you are. Nicodemus was a leading Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews, it tells us in our text, and we'll see that as we read along in a couple of moments. He has been intrigued like many others, by the signs and teachings of Jesus. And he and possibly a contingent of his disciples come to Jesus at night. And we have this scene unfolded as much of it as God has revealed to us. Now this passage, John chapter 3, that we're going to be studying, the first 15 verses of this morning, comes on the heels of what we talked about a couple of weeks back at the end of John chapter 2, and it's an impressive and important text of Scripture because there's a transition that takes place between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. So let's start by looking at the end of chapter 2 for just a moment. Jesus has already expressed something through John. So John is expressing something of Jesus' feelings toward those that have come to him simply because they liked the show he was putting on. You know the show? Like walking on water, healing the blind, making a person who can't speak speak, a person who can't walk, he now is walking. All of these amazing things that Jesus is doing in the presence of Israel, many are coming and they're intrigued. They're like, wow, that's really, that's really cool. You must be something special. Uh, I love the show. Well, look, listen to how John records 
Jesus' response to that, starting in verse 23, now when He, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. But Jesus, on His part, did not entrust Himself to them. The the word entrust there is the same word as believe in verse 23. They believed these signs. They believed in these things that He was doing, but Jesus didn't believe in them. Why? Because He knew all people. And He needed no one to bear witness about man, for He Himself knew what was in man. In other words, Jesus knew that they were just coming because they thought it was really cool what He was doing. They wanted to see someone else, uh, another instance of, of multiplied loaves, for instance. They wanted to see these things taking place. And Jesus wasn't here so everyone could think He was super cool or super neat or gathering a crowd. That was not His mission. So Jesus did not entrust Himself to those that were there just for the signs. But what's very interesting as we come into chapter 3, and our English Bibles don't all record this, the verse 1 of chapter 3 in my Bible says now. I don't know what the first word in your English Bible says, but the Greek says de, D-E, which means but. But. Jesus did not entrust Himself to these people. Chapter 3 and verse 1, but... There's a transition or a contrast. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to Him, Rabbi, we know that You are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that You do unless God is with Him. And so the first concept we want to understand here is that Jesus entrusted Himself to a Pharisee. Jesus entrusted Himself to a Pharisee. He wouldn't entrust Himself to these people coming because they saw the show. But a Pharisee comes to Him and Jesus entrusts Himself to Him and invests time and energy and Gospel truth to to Nicodemus so that his eyes might be opened and his heart made new and he would experience both the kingdom and eternal life coming to him as a gift from God. Jesus entrusts Himself to a Pharisee. Nicodemus comes here in verse 2, and he comes respectfully, and he comes demonstrating some intrigue. He calls him rabbi. Now, that was a respected title for a teacher. Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel. So the teacher of Israel comes to Jesus at night. We don't need to make a whole lot of implications about that. Is it because they were both busy during the day? That's when their schedules aligned? Or is he didn't want his reputation? Nicodemus didn't want his reputation sullied by seeing Jesus and, and, and the religious leaders hating on him? We don't know the answer to that, so let's not uh, make a lot of conjecture. They came at night. That's the time of day. Nicodemus comes to him and says, Rabbi, You're the teacher. This is a wonderful start to the conversation. It is is, uh, further demonstrated the respect and intrigue because Nicodemus says, we know that you are a teacher that has come from God. You're from God. There's another sign of respect there. And following that, for we see that no one can do these things that you're doing unless God is with him so you are from god god is with you you are a respected teacher 
a teacher from God. So this is a great, great start to the conversation. Jesus entrusts himself uh, to Nicodemus. He doesn't know, Nicodemus doesn't know whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. And he certainly doesn't know that Jesus is God in the flesh. He doesn't know that at this point. But what's amazing is Jesus is driving the train in this conversation, leading to the point of revelation that comes from God and is demonstrated by faith through Nicodemus. It's an amazing conversation that we have been uh, let into for these many years that God has had this recorded in the Scriptures for us. So not only does Jesus entrust Himself to Nicodemus, as the conversation unfolds, Jesus taught the supernatural way of salvation. Jesus taught the supernatural way of salvation. Look at verses 3 and following. It says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus taught the supernatural way of salvation. Speaking of the kingdom of God has numerous implications, uh, some that are still yet to, to be future, some that have implications now. But if even the concept of the kingdom of God, Jesus uses interchangeably in numerous places. And I'll, I'll reference for you Mark chapter 9. We're not going to turn there. We're just going to reference you. You can take a look at it later. In Mark chapter 9, verses 43, 45, and 47, Jesus uses the, the concept of entering life and the entering of the kingdom of God interchangeably. He uses these concepts together. In other words, entering life is entering the kingdom of God, and entering the kingdom of God is entering life. That's how he uses it in Mark chapter 9. That does not mean that there are no uh, implications of what the kingdom of God means in addition to eternal life, but here he uses it interchangeably in Mark. And I think here in John chapter 3, it has multiple angles, but we're going to focus in because the text unveils the emphasis of Jesus with regard to the kingdom is that of eternal life. Eternal life. That is the whole driving force of what Jesus is getting at in this text is that, that Nicodemus and others like him have the opportunity for eternal life through Christ. So he's addressing a Pharisee about seeing or entering the kingdom of God. That is about as attention-grabbing a topic as you could have. Again, we only have what's recorded for us. So we have the, the John's account that Jesus entrusts himself essentially to Nicodemus Nicodemus and perhaps some disciples come at night, and the first thing that Nicodemus says is, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things unless God is with him. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, thanks, great job, you know, I'm glad you noticed that. 
We have no idea what, what other things were said, but we do know the text tells us the, the first thing that we have recorded for us is Jesus says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, or verily, verily, or amen, amen, unless a man, whether that man is a publican, whether that man is a Pharisee, Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's an important concept. Seeing. Cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Nicodemus would have had no greater thought in life than seeing, entering, experiencing the kingdom of God. But what is interesting is Jesus makes this statement in such a jarring way because he's telling this Pharisee who attests the law and from the standpoint of mankind keeps the law that something else needs to happen for him to enter the kingdom of God. If a Pharisee ain't making it, ain't nobody making it, right? Fastidious, attentive, dedicated sacrifice to do exactly what they think that the law means. And Jesus says, you, you need something. You need to be born again. What did he need? He needed to be born from above is the concept. To be born again is to be born from above. So Nicodemus has this natural question that you would have if you've never been exposed to being born again I want to see the kingdom of God. I want to enter the kingdom of God. I need to be born again. What does that mean? He says, should I, should I enter my mother's womb again? That would be kind of awkward. And I probably won't fit at this point. Obviously, he's uh, using hyperbole with his response. He's like, I don't, I don't get it. What are you talking about? And Jesus simply restates the same claim in verse 5 that he made in verse 3, but he uses different terminology. He substitutes being born again or being born from above for a different concept that means the same thing. Look at verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Before, but before I get there, I want for you to think about Nicodemus' response to Jesus' claim that he must be born again. It's so typical. Tell me what to... Say that again, ready? Tell me what to do. That is always our response. Tell me what to do. I'll do it so I can attain. Just like the rich young ruler or the young lawyer that came to Jesus says, Oh, good teacher, tell me what I must do that I might inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, okay, you want to do something to attain, go and keep all the commandments. And the guy's like, all these things I've done from my youth. And Jesus essentially says, let's test that theory. Let's test that theory. We all know that the two commandments that represent the rest is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And ready? To love your neighbor as yourself. And I need to think about that. Love your neighbor as yourself. That summarizes the second table of the second commandments. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says, let's apply this. You keep all the commandments from your youth. So, what I want you to do now to demonstrate your obedience to these commandments is I want you to go home, sell everything you have, and give it to your neighbor. That man went away sad. Because he had many possessions. Now, it sounds nice to love my neighbor as myself, and it sounds like the right thing to do, doesn't it? Anyone disagree? None of us disagree. We all believe we should love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, I want you to think about this. Are you ready? You have one can of beans left, and you have a nine-year-old, and you have a seven-year-old. You have a wife and some older kids, too. You've got one can of beans left. How much do you love your neighbor right now? Do you love them just like you love yourself? Are you going to give them some of the beans? Or are you going to make sure your kids have the beans? Who's getting the beans? The kids are getting the beans, right? This is the problem with trying to do the law to gain eternal life. Because you and I cannot do that. We will not do that. I would venture to guess 100% of the people that lived on earth aside from Jesus, if given the scenario that they had to feed their kids or their neighbor, 100% would feed their kids. It's my guess. I think that I'm right. Who knows? What must I do to gain eternal life? Oh, you want to follow the law? This is something you need to know. You don't get it, rich young ruler. You don't get it, Nicodemus. Keeping the commandments fully, without interruption, without failure, forever is what's needed. Raise your hand if you've done that. So we're all a bunch of failures here. So also Nicodemus. So also rich young ruler. But there's good news. We don't have to gain our own inheritance ourselves. We don't, we can't be sinless and perfectly righteous forever. Here in our passage, Jesus says something needs to happen to Nicodemus, not something performed by Nicodemus. Something needs to happen to you, Nicodemus, not you need to do something, Nicodemus. See it again. Verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, that happens to you, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That happens to you. It's not something you do. So in verse 5, he restates with another clue, something that would help Nicodemus and us understand the divine nature associated with our salvation. Is what we're talking about, right? Jesus entrusts himself to Nicodemus. Jesus teaches the supernatural way of salvation. The supernatural way of salvation. So let's take a look, please, please uh, with me at Ezekiel 36 for a moment. Ezekiel is toward the end of the Old Testament. You've got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Then you have the minor prophets. Ezekiel 36. I'm going to 
pick it up right in the middle of this. And what I want for you to notice with me is all of the, ready? I wills of God. The I wills of God in this text. In this picture of the new covenant that was to come, the promises of God are fulfilled by class? God. I will. So let's take a look at this starting in verse 22. Ezekiel 36.22 Therefore says, uh, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. Who's going to act? I will. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean of all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. And I will summon the grain, etc., etc. Do you see? I will. And I will. And I will. And of essence, I will sprinkle clean water on you, taking away your sin. I will take your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will place My Spirit within you. I will cause you to be obedient. I am going to do all of this unless a man is born again, born from above. Unless a person has their heart cleansed by God and replaced by God and He gives you a new heart of flesh, unless that takes place, you will never see the kingdom of God. And you'll never enter the kingdom of God, which means you will not experience eternal life. This happens from God. And, And Jesus doesn't leave it there. He doesn't just say, okay, here's this mystical reference that only people like Nicodemus would understand because he's the only one that would have read Ezekiel 36 and understood this new heart concept. I'm going to take it another step further in the the next portion of the conversation. Head back there, please, to to John 3. It's, It's amazing. He just layers it with this wonderful teaching about God's supernatural activity. God is the one that replaces our heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh. He's the one that cleans us and causes obedience to flow. In John 3, to enter the kingdom, we need a heart cleansed and enlivened. This is what God does for us. Jesus' offer of hope to this Pharisee was not related to Nicodemus finding a new way to get to God but a presentation that God was ready to provide supernatural 
intervention for his redemption and inclusion in the kingdom. So we're, we're back in John 3. Look at verses 6 through 8. That which is born of the flesh is what? Flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is what? Spirit. Do not marvel, Nicodemus, that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is, will you read the rest of that, who is born of the Spirit. Born from above. Born from the Spirit. Washed with clean water. Washed with the Spirit. Given life. Heart of stone removed. Heart of flesh in its place. This is a work that I cannot produce, that Nicodemus could not produce, that you cannot produce. It's a work that only God can produce. And you know what's awesome? He does it. He does it. Again, and again, and again, and again, he gives new hearts. Where it's needed, he removes our sin and he gives us life. He does it again and again. All around the globe. In different churches and not in churches. He does it through people's evangelistic endeavors and through God just bringing someone to Himself without anybody's help. He's so faithful to make people like me and like you alive. These concepts, my friends, should build faith within us to know that God is about doing this good work of redeeming people like us and redeeming people that aren't exactly like us. Our neighbors and coworkers and family members, people we think are far beyond the reach of the gospel. I've tried. I try to tell them this way and I try to tell them that way and I try to do this and I try to do that. You can't make someone alive. Only God can. They're born of the Spirit. And this is not the first time in the Gospel of John that we've been exposed to this. Take a look at John chapter 1. We've already been exposed to this from the beginning of the Gospel of John. Take a look at very uh, familiar verses, I believe, for many of us. Verses 12 and 13. Here it says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were what? Born. Okay, We're talking about the same concept here, right? Born. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Will you read the last three words? But of God. Born of God. Born of the Spirit. Who's doing the work? God is. So right now, in this conversation with Nicodemus, we're talking about the supernatural part of salvation where God is the the driving force which he is the driving force this is not uh, unique to the gospel of John uh, tonight in our discussion groups we're going to talk about Titus chapter 3 for for just a moment we're going to take a look there Titus chapter 3 tonight in our discussion groups we'll talk a, a little bit more about Titus chapter 3 and and uh, some of the implications but for now we're just going to read through this and make a couple of observations I think that will be helpful to us 
with regard to God's wonderful work of salvation. The supernatural way of salvation. Verse 3 of Titus chapter 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, passing our days in envy, hated by others, and hating one another. What a wonderful picture that has been set. (laughs) Ready? Stop. Just listen. Without God's intervention, that's all of us unendingly. But verse 4 comes. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is who we are. This is who God is. And He appears. This is what God does. And this is the result. Isn't this an amazing reality? And this is really very much parallel to John chapter 3 where Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Oh, Rabbi, we know that you're from God for no one can do these things that you're doing unless God is with him. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you've got to know this. You're not okay. You, this is my, you know, my injection, you are Titus 3.3. You might have holy clothes on, but there's something else inside of you, and it ain't holy. It's verse 3. You need to be born again. What do you mean? You need to be washed by water from me, and you need the Spirit to come and give you life. The flesh produces what? Fleshliness. You want something spiritual? It comes by the Spirit. So the wind blows where it wants to. We don't know how, you know, all this circuitry. I'm sure we have some charts and graphs about the, the circuits of wind and stuff. It's still beyond our full comprehension. The same is true with those that are born of the Spirit. Let's head back now to John chapter 3 and look at Nicodemus's bewildered response. John chapter 3, and we're going to look at verse 9 now. Nicodemus said to him, Oh, is that, what you, that, that would be um, like the new lingo version. Huh? Uh, how can these things be? I don't get it. Hint, hint, hint. Unless you're born again, you won't see. Unless you're born again, you won't look. You won't believe. You need me to help you see 
me. And this is where Jesus is going to go next. Not only did Jesus entrust himself to Nicodemus, and then he taught him the supernatural way of salvation. Now, as we look at verses 10 through 15, which will take us another 10 minutes or so, as we look at verses 10 through 15, we're going to see Jesus taught the pathway of salvation. There's the supernatural. This is, this is the behind-the-scenes look. You can't do this. You need. You're needy. It's only a work of God. And now Jesus says, here's how you access it. Here's how you can access it. He says in verse, verses 10 and following, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? This is not a new concept, Nicodemus. Jesus states his bewilderment at Nicodemus's bewilderment. You're like the main teacher, and you don't see the supernatural aspect of God redeeming rebellious people? You don't see this? Think all the way back to the garden. Adam and Eve had a lavish, beautiful, wonderful, perfect environment in which to enjoy life. One, prohibition. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They found out through their own searching and Satan's promptings, I think that might be better than what God is offering me. I'm going to believe a talking serpent and my own opinions over against what God has declared. So they take and eat, and the dummy with her also takes and eats. If I were the dummy with her, I would have probably taken and eaten, right? So I'm not saying, Adam, you dummy. I'm saying, Adam, you dummy. That's us. What happens next? Oh, I'm naked. Ah! Bad news. <laughs> um, I'm afraid. I feel exposed. I'm going to hide. And in the face of Adam and Eve hiding from God, having disobeyed God, rebelled against God, and chosen to make themselves king as opposed to recognizing God's worth as king, God comes on and lets them know there's, th this is not going to be a, a fun process for you. However, I have something for you, even in the face of your sin. Not only am I going to make you a promise about redemption to come, I'm also going to cover you with clothes. Where did that clothing come from? An animal. I'm going to show you that someone is going to cover for you. I am going to provide for you covering. Right from the start, it's not about works of righteousness which we have done. It's according to His mercy that He saves us. Think about it a little bit further. You've got a whole wide world with every thought and every intention only evil. And God provides an ark. And then you have uh, Abram 
doing whatever he's doing in the Ur of the Chaldees. And God comes to him and says, I am going to make you a great nation. I am going to bless you. I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to give you a land. And I am going to cause, through your seed, blessing to come upon all the face of the earth. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through your seed. Did Abraham ask for this? No. God has done this. God has done this. And then you think about the people of Israel in the midst of Egypt. And they're, they're enslaved and they cry out to the Lord and the Lord hears their cry and He provides redemption for them and He spares them from the, the death of the firstborn on the Passover night. And then they're headed out. Headed out and they come to the, the Red Sea and the people of the armies of Egypt are behind them. And Moses says this, Work really hard to figure out a way out of this mess. Nope. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Look. Watch. See what I do for you in providing for you. Even when you do stupid thing after stupid thing. Oh God, you brought us out here just to kill us in the wilderness. It's an amazing reality. Time and time again, the list of examples of God's provision of rescue are, uh, is vast. Look a little further into our text. Verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, things you know, things you can feel, things that are tangible, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? What kind of heavenly things? Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, in some versions, who is in heaven. If you can't understand God's provision that he's demonstrated again and again in these earthly terms, what if I tell you that I am the exalted Lord seated at the right hand of the Father from all of eternity and for all of eternity? I'm there and here right now. What if I told you that? didn't understand the other thing you've taken it to a whole other level but now jesus does us a wonderful favor and he takes these complex terms and he takes them and he's going to put the cookies on the bottom shelf he's going to take this concept that is amazing and requires a lot of thought and he's going to say, let me put it in terms that even a four-year-old can understand. Look, please, at verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus uses this illustration that no doubt Nicodemus would have been familiar with. We read it earlier in Numbers chapter 21. David read it for us in our scripture reading, so we're not going to turn there right now. You'll remember the people of Israel are in the wilderness and they start complaining about Moses and whom? God. And they essentially say, uh, we're hungry and we're thirsty and as far as this food you're giving us, it's worthless. 
Try that on for size. You're in your tent at night. You love tenting. I'm sure most of us, if we were to go camping, would be glamping. Um, you come out of your tent in the morning, and you look out, and there's food on the ground for you. Manna. On Sunday, on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday, and a double portion on Friday. Like clockwork. And you say, as for this worthless food you keep providing for us, pah! So let's try to take it in and let's, let's, let's try to earth it a little bit. Here you are tomorrow morning. Let's suppose you have five kids. I know you don't, but let's just suppose you do. Five kids, you wake up in the morning, you make this elaborate meal, put it on the breakfast table, and they sit down at the table and they're like, what is this? What are you doing? Why are you giving this to me? This is disgusting. Don't you have anything better to offer me than this? Would that be a little insulting? Would you might be a little bit frustrated? Do you think that's healthy for, our, for your children to feel that way at the provision that's given? No. You think, man, perhaps we have spoiled you a little bit if you pancakes aren't good enough for the likes of you. Um, so we'd have some really wonderful conversations and the like at our table. But here, let's put it back in Numbers 21. God says, you don't even see my hand of love and provision for you. That's unhealthy. You're harming yourself. And so God doesn't leave them in that condition. And he sends fiery serpents after them. Yikes. Several, many, died. And others were inflicted and dealing with the venom of those fiery serpents. And the people like, Moses, we sinned against God and we sinned against you. Please ask God to take them away. And Moses prays and they go away. And God says to Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to form a bronze fiery serpent, put it on a, a pole, lift it up, and tell people, if you look at this, you'll live. And every single one of those Israelites, rebellious and disdainful and ungrateful as they were, if they looked at this bronze serpent, God took away their affliction and they lived. Physical life. Nicodemus, I want to take this concept that you're familiar with physical life and we're going to turn it into something far more significant. When, when this, this bronze servant is lifted up, look and physical life. Now that, what's interesting, and this is so typical of mankind, when God gives a good thing, it is so easy for you and for me to start to worship the provision rather than the provider. And don't look at your neighbor like it's them. You have a good job. You have a good family. You have good food. You have nice clothing. You have a nice house. All these things. It's so easy to be so focused in on all these provisions. And we work diligently to make sure that everything just works out just right. Where we start to worship the provision and forget about the provider. Well, this is exactly what happens with the bronze serpent. 
it ends up in 2 Kings chapter 18 that King Hezekiah had to break that thing because they started to worship it. Listen to these words from 2 Kings chapter 18. He, Hezekiah, removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. So what did they do? Wow, I looked and I received life. I'm going to tell my kids. I'm going to tell my kids about this. I'm going to tell my grandkids about this. Look, I looked and I lived. Look at this thing. Look at what it does. Worship, worship, worship. It's so easy for us to substitute the provision for the provider. But Jesus does us such an awesome favor here because this is who God is. Look at what He says in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. The provision is the provider. And here, we can absolutely worship the provision because it's the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the eternal Godhead. We can worship the provision because the provision is the provider. Jesus deals with even the idolatry of our heart. He knows that we always substitute that which is good for that which is raunchy. And in this situation, you can't even do that. Look at me and live. Not physically. Because all those people that died, that, that received life from that bronze servant, they ended up dying again. You look at this Son of Man lifted up. You believe in Him. You'll find there the source of the cleansing of your sin. You'll find in Him the source of the provision of a new heart. You'll find in Him the source of the provision of the Spirit of God to dwell in you, with you, and for you. You'll find in this provision the Son of Man exalted and lifted up. You'll find in Him everything that you need to deal with your eternal destiny for all the days of your life. Jesus entrusted Himself to Nicodemus. Jesus taught him the supernatural elements of salvation. That you're born of the Spirit. And then He teaches him the pathway. It's this complicated. Look. Look. And live. John the Baptist came on the scene and he said, Behold! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus deals with Nicodemus. You want to see the kingdom of God? You want to see the kingdom of God? Look to me and I will give you life and you'll see it and feel it and experience it. This is who God is. It's not by works of righteousness that we have done. It's according to His mercy that He saves us. He saves us. The Spirit moves where He will. We're born of God. We need to look 
Look to our Savior and live. Look to Christ today. His salvation is offered freely. Christ crucified for us. Christ buried for us. Christ raised for our justification. Today, you can be aware of God's provision of forgiveness for you and God's provision in declaring you righteous. Today, you can be aware of this. This comes through believing that Jesus is enough. We look to him. This is what we do. We come in here, we open the word, and we say, look, here he is. Well, not literally, here he is. Holding out Christ, offering him, believe, come to him. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's what verse 15 says. This is good news for us to receive. This is good news for us to share. In sharing it, we can be confident in God's ability to open eyes of the blind to be able to look and to live. And who was this revealed to? A Pharisee. A self-righteous adherent to the law and one who led others to do the same. And yet Jesus offered life to him. You know, there's hope. There's hope for drunkards and revilers. There's hope for tax collectors and sinners. There's hope for rapists and pedophiles and murderers and liars and covetous people. And there's hope for a Pharisee. There's hope for those that seek to attain their own righteousness. Please know you can't attain your own righteousness. Your righteousness will condemn you on that final day. But God says, I will give you my righteousness. Look. Live. Receive. I've done it all. I provide for you a righteousness that will cause you to stand on that day. You will endure in the presence of God in joy and glory forever. We've received this from Christ and we offer this to others for God's glory and their good. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have revealed these things. We're amazed in your kindness to people of every variety. We see, we see it in the scriptures and we see it in life. You save all kinds of people. But we know you only save them through one way, which is through Christ, your Son, and our Savior. I pray for anyone in this room, anyone watching, listening today, that you would help us to see and believe. Help us to look and live. For those of us that know Christ as Savior, we pray that you'd give us confidence as we hold Christ out for others. Help us to point 
to him, recognizing that you are the one who brings about this salvation, but people can look to you and live. And so we pray that you'd help us to confidently and boldly share these truths, watching, watching for you to do your wonderful work of saving people like us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.